For many, the initial lure to rock and roll can be traced back to music videos. Remember music videos? Montages filled with flashy guitars, big bottom drums, packed crowds, and hot-looking women. And they all helped create a lavish world that bewitched many a teen to pick up a guitar or a pair of drumsticks. Ask any musician born within a certain time their initial motivation for getting into music, and after you peel away the stock mannerly answers, it'll be these music videos and the lifestyle they propagated as the foundational motivator. For years, I fooled myself that I didn't really want in, that it was a fool's game, a mirage. Instinctually, I would know this to be true, but I finally relented and admitted to myself that no matter what the con was, I wanted in. And so, without really a plan B, leapt headfirst into music. Now, when I look back on my gamble, I can't believe I had the balls to do it. I don't know if I'd do it again, knowing what I know and seeing what I've seen. Those flashy guitars and big bottom drums, those were borrowed for the video shoot. Those packed crowds, they were shot while opening for the headlining band. And those attractive girls, they were the girlfriends of the producer's girlfriend and promptly left when the director yelled, cut. So what keeps me in this game? This game where the cards are stacked against you from the moment you walk out of your practice space. This game where for every successful band you see, there's a sleazy fat cat making four times more money than anyone in the band lurking in the shadows behind them. Well, it's a very simple answer. So simple that it sounds dumb when you say it out loud, but it's the chance to be as close to the music I grew up with and the people who make it as much as possible. Maybe the initial lure was the fast lane with its money and girls and limos and fame, you know, like every 14-year-old kid. But once all that revealed itself to be a giant pose, the only thing that was left, stripped down to the core, was the music. And I knew that was really all I ever wanted. As time moves onward, most people who were around back then, active in music either as a fan or behind the scenes that were around me, have now receded back into normal life. Maybe it was the prospect of a good job, marriage, kids, a simple loss of interest, dashed hopes, crushed dreams, or the realization that this wasn't worth it, whatever it was. Now that the dust is starting to settle, one can start to see who is left standing. Being from Toronto, when I look around, I don't see anyone else standing there except Sean Kelly. Sean Kelly is a guitarist from North Bay, Ontario, a three and a half hour drive from Toronto, not far away at all, but for years, I only heard his name, never met the guy. Whether it was his band Crash Kelly, or him joining Coney Hatch, or Helix, or Nelly Furtado's touring band, or us having a string of mutual friends, our paths never crossed. It got to the point where people everywhere assumed that we not only knew each other, but were best buds. This went on for close to 15 years. But I only finally met him two summers ago when our band played the Skogsroyet Festival with the Lee Aaron Band. And Sean plays guitar with Lee. Of course, I was beyond thrilled to meet Lee Aaron, who I've been listening to since her Metal Queen days, but doubly so because Sean and I were finally able to meet. Sean Kelly can easily be called the busiest man in rock. 
whether it's writing, recording, and playing in Lee Aaron's band, or in Helix, or in Coney Hatch, being the guitarist in Nelly Furtado's band, like I mentioned, writing his book Metal on Ice for Dundurn Press, working with Dee Snyder, or putting out his classical guitar albums. I look at Sean and truly admire his work ethic, but more so, his genuine love to be near the music that we both grew up on. Of course, one needs more than a fanatic's drive. One needs to have their chops at a world-class level in order to get these kinds of gigs, and Sean has delivered time and time again. This chat, which you are about to hear, is simply two Ontario rockers who chose to try and fly a little too close to the sun, and we are both enjoying the flight. Thank you for listening to this, by the way. Thanks for all the comments, whether they be on Twitter, Instagram, or even on the iTunes store. Please leave a rating or a review if you haven't, if you've been listening to this podcast for quite some time. I've been doing it for quite some time, and I love doing it. It's all I ask. It would be much appreciated. I don't ask for anything to do this podcast, just your time. But I do ask if you could leave a rating or a review up on iTunes. Okay, I hope you dig this one. It's with guitarist and rocker supreme, Sean Kelly. And it starts now. The Tango Joe's podcast is the best around. Nick Flanagan is Tango's co-hotel for free. I'm Zach Flanagan. I do sometimes. Jimmy in from Fucktown. Stop playing. Hang down. The Tango Joe's podcast is the best around. Nick Flanagan is Tango's co-host. Download for free. SoundCloud and iTunes Sometimes Damien Fucked up Stops by and hangs out too I thought Danko was crazy when he told me he was from the planet Zob, but when he showed me his spaceship, I, I had to take a trip in it. We traveled through the solar system for what seemed like 10 years visiting planets and battling alien races. I even reared a few alien families. <laughs> when we got back to Earth, I realized that the 10-year space trip only took a few minutes back on Earth. Danko and I had some crazy times together. Neat Kloop Blot. You might not know what that means, but Danko does. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, get ready, because the Danko Jones Podcast starts <laughs> Hello. Hey, Danko. Sean. How are you? Okay, we're connected. <laughs> yeah. So this is great. I, you know, for years and years and years, every time I'd meet anybody, either it's in Canada or abroad, and they'd find out I'm from Toronto, people would automatically assume that you and I know each other, we're friends, we've jammed, we've written songs and albums together, we've played on stage together. <laughs> I know, I know. It, it, it's so funny. Um, uh, I've, had, I've had the same experience, but I'm kind of, from my perspective, it's like, are you kidding? Like, that guy is huge. <laughs> you know, like, I, 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 I know who he is, but I, I, I've never had the opportunity to, to meet him or... <laughs> So that why that's why it was so nice to meet you finally in Sweden. That's right. That's where. Yeah, exactly. That was like a couple of years ago, and uh, I, I really wanted to meet you because I mean, uh, I felt like I was supposed to have like ten years ago. <laughs> I know. You know, it's funny. I have to tell you. I think the first time I ever. Well, I remember seeing you. I used to play in a band called Vibralux, 
And I'm sure that we shared bills together. If it was not Fiberlux, it was another band. I'm sure I played on some bills with you. And I, re- I remember seeing you play live. But the first time I ever saw you outside of watching you on stage was, I think my band, Crash Kelly at the time, was playing with Backyard Babies and you were there. I remember that. And I never met you that night. Um, no. Is that I, crazy I or what? I, I didn't have anything to say. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I don't want to, you know, I didn't want to impose upon you because I knew you were visiting with those guys. Well, that was a crazy <laughs> night because uh, I went on your bus that you were sharing with them. and That's I, right. And they said, yeah, you, you know Crash Kelly and Sean Kelly. They're one of the pe- many people who said, you guys know each other, right? So I, I said, no, no, I don't, I don't know them. I'm on your bus, never meet you. I'm at the gig, never meet you. Yeah, I, I just said, okay, well, if I'm not going to meet him while I'm on his bus at his show, <laughs> I don't think it's in the cards, man. <laughs> and that's, that's so that was funny. an, I think it was an 05, that gig, or 04. And that was 05, man. That was a long time ago. Yeah, so we yeah. only met, if it was two years ago, 2018. 13 that's years later, right. I finally meet you. I know. And I have to tell you, it was so nice to put uh, a face to the name and the music because I, I've been an admirer for, for such a long time. Oh, thanks, and, man. Uh, I, I really and, liked Crash Kelly as well. So it's mutual, I, I guess. Awesome. Well, thanks, dude. Yeah, it was, uh, I was, I, in, in knowing I was going to talk to you, I was excited. So I was listening to some of the records and I was just thinking, we have so many of the, I believe, shared touchstones in the music that we've, uh, we've listened to and been influenced by and appreciate and uh, man it's it just it's so great like you know and, and I was just I was marveling at how well your band swings I was like hey there's a swing in music that we don't hear a lot in the modern interpretation of what we are influenced by uh, so you know I, I, that was something I just wanted to, to share with you I was like wow man that band swings so hard it sounds so great I think it's because, like, a lot, you know, due to the, you know, uh, digital, the, the way we make music digitally now, it, it, there is a tendency for, for it to be put on, on a conveyor belt, more so than yeah. before. And I think that's what takes the swing out, whether people feel it or not. Um, and, and, you know, even though we're on a conveyor belt as well, meaning, you know, we use Logic and Pro Tools and, and stuff like that. Uh, in making the music, it's it. They're just all that digital. Uh, all the digital devices need to be thrown out the window at, at a certain certain point. Whether it's at the beginning, the gestation of of writing, or I don't know if you can do it at the end of of the recording. But yeah, it's it's. Uh, I I know exactly what you mean, and and I also feel a kinship with you uh, for um, you know influences and and backgrounds which is something i wanted to ask you about like what yeah what is your background in music in terms of you know growing up and your your introduction and relationship with it as a teenager into your 20s well you know it's interesting because i i can pretty clearly delineate uh you know a, a few moments in my life i my earliest moments of connecting with something were with superheroes and comic books and from there, it went to Star Wars. And from there, it went to rock and roll. And it stayed at rock and roll. So when I was 10 years old, I mean, music was in the periphery because I had an older sister 
was 13 years older than me. So oh. there was vinyl and there was Grand Funk and there oh, was, okay. you know, T-Rex and there was all that stuff was and Kiss through through her boyfriends or, you know, friends coming over and playing records. So there was that in the periphery. But where it really became mine was with Dee Snyder. It was Twisted Sister. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Very clearly, I, uh, you know, because I, I, you know, like many kids, you know, you have the the fears of a kid or the, the not connecting maybe with your peer group or whatever, you know, not that I didn't have friends or anything, but I, you know, I was searching for something that was mine and this felt so distinctly and succinctly like mine when I heard Twisted Sister. I just connected. I said... I want to be that. I want to be involved with all of that. The color, the look, the sound, everything. So that's where it kind of came into play for me. So was that Stay Hungry, Twisted Sister, with the videos and stuff? Stay Hungry, Twisted Sister, absolutely. That right. was where, like, you know, I'm a product of suburban northern Ontario, right? So it's... uh um, mall culture, everything like kind of on a smaller basis in Toronto, uh, scaled down, but but similar. Like you know, you go to the mall, and I got my first rock T-shirt. Was you know, I remember my brother-in-law. You know, my mom didn't want me to have that in the house. Going to get the Iron-On Twisted Sister T-shirt at the mall at the kiosk, right? And that was like contraband. I had to hide it in the garage. <laughs> but uh, yes, and so. <laughs> From there, it was Twisted Sister, and, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm raised Roman Catholic, right? So, I mean, and remember, this is the height of the PMRC. So, if Chatelaine's telling your mom that, you know, like the devil's <laughs> in the grooves of the records or, or Canadian living or whatever it was, you know, like it was terrifying for them, right? And all of a sudden, I'm literally bringing the devil into the house with, uh, like, you know, I remember going to Wolko and going to, and, and staring <laughs> I'd shout at the devil in the cassette. You know, there was the deli, and then yeah. there was like the the cassette section of the of of Wolko, and I would just stare at it and go, "How do I get this in the house? Like, how do I access it?" Well, because I'm scared, but I want it. <laughs> I had the cassette of Shout at the Devil as well, and the cassette didn't have the pentagram on the cover, so it just had mm -hmm. the four squares of the guys. So that's how I I was able to get the cassette into my house as well <laughs> oh yeah my, my mom looked at the guy he's choking it was mick mars you know it looks like he's getting choked by the collar and his tongue sticking out he's choking and i'm going he's choking it's like i mean <laughs> the things that you know fear will make you see it's kind of funny <laughs> oh yeah yeah well yeah that's very interesting um so northern ontario so i grew up in toronto so right. i have a very similar i think we have a very i think the two of us have <laughs> have a very similar uh, background with music because all those bands you're, you're throwing out are exactly entry points for me as well. Um, yeah. I mean, I love those videos of Twisted Sister, and, and, but I don't think I bonded it as much as it seems you did uh, with it because I was, like, I, I know Kiss seemed to be your sister and her boyfriend's band, but Kiss was my band. So okay. So when I saw Twisted Sister, I thought, "Oh, these guys are doing a Kiss thing with the makeup." Oh, thing. you were you were hip to that. Okay. Yeah. That's cool. So I was I was more like, "Oh, it's cool. I'm glad some other bands wearing makeup." You know, because I thought when I was growing up, I thought you weren't a cool band unless you wore makeup. Because <laughs> I love right. Kiss, you know, and Motley Crue, Shout at the Devil, uh, you know, with Nikki Six and Mick Mars, it, they they kind of uh, were wearing makeup too. So. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, yeah, Wasp, all those bands. Like, it's funny, even the, the bands who were, were not supposed to look like they were wearing makeup were wearing tons of makeup. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I could see that. Did you collect Circus and Hit Parader and all that too? 100%. Yeah. I was, uh, you know, as much as the record store was important to me, the drug store was important to me because that's where you got the magazines, right? Oh, okay. Like, I think I read about music as much as I listened to it, if not more, because mm-hmm. it was a more affordable access point. Okay. I could probably describe what Dawkins sounded like before I could afford to go buy the record. Yeah, that's the same with me. I mean, I, I knew about Iron Maiden before I heard them. Right, right. And so thank God when I heard Iron Maiden, I actually liked it. Like I liked <laughs> the sound or, or was it because I had read so much about them that no matter what they sounded like, I was going to like them. I, I really don't know anymore. You, you never could tell. But I don't know. If it was really that bad, I, it would have faded by now. So Well, I, mean, I think so. And I think I also think that, um, you know, when you did kind of muster up the, the funds to go buy something, you took a chance. Like, I mean, I don't know if Dio's Dream Evil is Dio's best record, but it's my favorite because I just put the money in and bought it. I bought it so I just had to like it. Like, I just had to because... I would be so crushed if I didn't, and I'd already scratched the record. I can't get, bring it back. You know what I mean? That's so funny because I have a very similar experience with Dio, but it was Sacred Heart. And right. uh, I bought Sacred Heart, and I was like, oh, yeah, this is good. And then I heard, um, what was it? Not Last in Line, but was it Last in Line? Which one's the one where the, he's whipping the, the priest? Oh, Holy Diver. Holy Diver, of course. Holy Diver. I, yeah. uh, then I heard Holy Diver. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> Sacred Heart stinks, man. <laughs> Holy yeah, yeah. Diver rules. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but Dream Evil is great. Dream Evil is awesome. I mean, I think... It's amazing. Dream, yeah, it's amazing. Uh, I don't know what was going on for Sacred Heart, but <laughs> there's a few good songs on there. But yeah, uh, nobody, really, nobody really references Sacred Heart when, they, when it comes to Dio. But, uh, you know, and I, I took a chance on buying the cassette. And, uh, yeah, like you said, it's, it's all my allowance money, like three weeks of allowance money, I think. And I'd go downtown to Sam the Record Man. Wow. Yeah, wow. and I'd look at all the, uh, the cassettes that were, were, or the albums that were released that week, you know. So, yeah. Well, to have, see, I'm so jealous my... my younger self is so jealous of you with the choice you had i mean i was really lucky in north bay there was this cool guy named barry green he had records on wheels so he was kind of hip uh he kind of like let me know what i was getting wasn't cool because he was older than me right he's going ah man you should check out rainbow dude i'm going rainbow i don't know about rainbow but i know i like this (laughs) well that's of course you find out oh that was the good stuff oh that was great okay Oh, that's when yeah. you had someone. I had television and magazines to, to tell me what to buy. Uh, and I bought a lot of stinkers. But, you know, like you're saying, um, because you, you saved so much money, those albums, I don't know, they mean something to me. Like, for example, Metal Church is the Dark. I bought that, and I didn't like it at first. But, I mean, I don't have too many cassettes to listen to, so I just listened to that so much that when I listen to it today... It takes me back, and I love the album, you know. Exactly. I, I, I'm trying to think. You know what? Another one for me that was huge was the Hearing record. Remember when Dio put together, and Jimmy Bain and Vivian Campbell put together 
their version of We Are the World. Yeah, we're stars, right? Yeah, we're stars. See, for me, and it's funny, going back to Sacred Heart, I, I, I love, my, one of my favorite Dio songs is Hungry for Heaven because there was a live <laughs> version on that hearing aid record. Right. So I had to go get Sacred Heart, of course. Uh, but yeah, but, but I used to think like, oh man, if I've only got so much money, I better get one with as many people as possible. So that's why, or as many hits. Right. So that's why I was buying live records. Like I'm buying like ah, okay. Wasp Live in the Raw, right? Or or a Great White cover record because it's like, oh, okay, well, Great White's a band that I should like, and they're doing all these older songs. Like you know, I'm trying to go for quantity and value. <laughs> I uh, that's an interesting way to 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 take it all in and to uh, bring yourself up to speed. I never thought of it that way. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm not saying it's the right way. Kids, don't listen to me. <laughs> but but it's how I did it. <laughs> well, I loved Hearing Aid. Well, I mean, you mentioned Hearing Aid, and I, I, I love that album, and I love the... Uh, that's the greatest heavy metal band in history. Did you... I mean, Killer, when you think about it, that band has the greatest amount of... Um, um, cr- there's no other band that has Halford and Dio in the band. Oh, I know it, it, it's and you know and and some of the the uh, dark horse candidates in the vocal department, like like the guy from Blue Oyster Cult. Oh, right, yes, like yeah. he, he, he does it. We can be strong. We are fire and stone. I just like I'm like wow, that's great. Who is this guy? You know, that's and, what and I was thinking when I was a kid and I was watching the video. I'm like, who the hell's that dude? <laughs> All the guys with the beards were like, who? What? What's that guy got in his face? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I know that guy. I know that guy. I know that guy. Who's that guy? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a few of them. There was uh, and Buck Dharma. I'm going, who's this? Yeah, but my, again. My, yeah. Uh, out of all of them, he, he did the best solo, right? The most tasteful kind of musical solo. The rest of them were just kind of going Yeah, it's going so off. funny how your tastes change. When I saw, back then, I was like, oh, Craig Goldie, he ripped it. Vivian Campbell ripped this one. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, now you look back. Although Brad Gillis, man... It, I'm always a, I, I got a soft spot for Brad Gillis. He 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 did a good one. Yeah, man, he's like the Jeff Beck of of hair metal, right? Like he's got like this, like it, it goes beyond uh, a trickery. He's he's got such a melodic ear and his intonation. And you know those a lot of those guys, those first wave guys, are really seventies rock guys who were just adapting with the new gear, you know, and post Van Halen kind of yeah. stuff, right? Uh, and then later on, it got refined down to. I don't know, Michelangelo, who's a lovely guy, by the way, uh, you know, with the eight, four necks and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm out. I'm out. I don't even yeah, know. I, I'm nah. out. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, Brad Gillis, I met him at Sweden Rock uh, oof, years ago, and I met him at catering, and yeah. he was eating, and I saw our eyes locked, and I guess my eyes started bulging when I saw him, and he saw that look. He saw my face. And then, but I kept my distance. I let him eat. And then yeah. when he finished eating, uh, I, I approached him and he didn't say anything. He just said, okay, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. He knew I wanted a photo <laughs> and uh, he was cool. You know, he was really professional. But then when I snapped the photo, when some, the, the, when I saw the photo, it was, it, he gave me a look like we were best friends. So I'll always Gosh. be nice. I, I, I was thank him for that that was really cool like i mean he didn't have to do anything you know and i i i did not bother him 
So, but when I saw him, I'm like, oh my God, that's Brad Gillis. <laughs> Dude, I had, it's so funny you mentioned that. I had the same experience. I was playing with Helix and we played at this Rocklahoma festival in Tulsa and, and Night Ranger was on the bill. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and, and Quiet Riot, or not, not sorry, not Quiet Riot, uh, Rat and oh, a few other bands. But yeah. it was, int- yeah, it was Rat, Warrant, Night Ranger. But what was so cool was I was there with Brian and Brent from Helix in the lobby. And to watch them, oh, it, it was rap, but with Carlos Cavazzo. That's what it was. But to watch Brian and Brent interact with old peers. And I'm going, this is incredible. Like, I'm a super fan right now. But those guys are old friends with years of shared touring history. And I got to kind of be brought, like, I did the same thing, man. I stayed back, but... I'm just going, Brad Gillis, speak of the devil, you know, like Night Ranger, yeah. like I'm losing it. And it was so special to me. And, uh, and you know, like I, I didn't, t- I'm really glad that experience happened later in my career because it wasn't lost on me that Warren DeMartini saying, hey man, it's hot out there. Watch that leather jacket. I'm going, holy crap. <laughs> I can't That's heavy, man. Fathom it. Yeah. That's pretty heavy. I mean, he's one of my favorite guitar players of all time. Yeah. But uh, that, that brings me to, okay, so we've got your background. Now, if I was in your shoes and I'm hanging around these circles, like, you know, the, the 13, 14-year-old me would be freaking out. And, and you have been uh, fortunate enough to be in Helix and Coney Hatch. And yeah, if man. I'm not mistaken, you've played with Lita Ford as well. And, yeah. and of course you're in Lee Aaron's band. These are yeah. these those are four those names are four staples of that era. So yeah. how I don't even know what question to ask you, but like that's all I can say is that is super cool, man. I, I mean, as a fan and now I understand we're both mutual fans of this era, how do yeah. you what do you think? What do you how what goes through your mind? when you get the Lee Aaron gig or you get the Lita Ford gig? Like, how did that even happen? Well, with, with Lita, it wasn't a gig. I really only played once with her, and that came about because um, she was doing uh, um, this Rock and Con um, uh, convention. And oh, I, I know, okay, yeah, in London, Ontario. Yeah, so that was it. And that came about through the Twisted Sister D. Snyder camp. A uh, little background, I did a musical... With actually going back further, I was in a band uh, called Four by Fate that had a couple of members from Fraley's Comet. Oh my god! <laughs> so I was yeah, John John Reagan and Todd Howarth and Stet Howland from Wasp was the drummer, and uh, and we were put together. We had done this Kiss tribute record. They wanted to get Fraley's Comet back together, but Ace didn't want to do it. A friend of mine, Mitch Lafon, put me in touch or put them in touch with me, and I met a guy named Danny Stanton, who and Danny. Uh, was Twisted Sisters agent and became the Four by Fate manager. Anyway, long story short, I did the Four by Fate thing, which was great. And uh, Danny and I stayed in touch. And Danny connected me when uh, D was coming to Toronto to do a musical called D Snyder's Rock and Roll Christmas Tale. Long story short, I thought I was going for a guitar gig. I ended up getting an acting and dancing gig, and I had to learn from Broadway choreographers and acting coaches how to be a stage actor while playing 80 shred guitar on stage it was amazing 
so anyway, we're, I worked with D, and through that, when Lita and D were coming through, uh, Danny asked me to help with the music. He knew that I could go up there and play the Lita stuff without rehearsing because I was such a fan. <laughs> that was basically it. Okay, so back up here. You started this chat saying how much of a huge Twisted Sister fan you were. So how was it like working with D. Snyder for his, uh, his theater show? It was honestly the greatest professional experience of my life um, for the obvious reason of, first of all, D was everything you would want your hero to be. Okay. He, he was, uh, he takes no prisoners. He's the greatest front man I've ever felt on stage. Like, you know, like the energy and the power of this man is incredible. But to watch how he lives his life and the intensity and the uh, dedication and uh, and then to find out he's a highly articulate, kind, funny guy uh, a, a, who is also a massive music fan. I mean, for every day, man, for like weeks, I got to go in early and talk with Dee Snyder and talk about Mountain and Black Sabbath and Rainbow and you know, and get tips and get inspiration. It was like the best mentorship you could ever ask for. And I really mean that. Like, I'm not gilding the lily here. This guy is a special man and, and he's done, he continues to push the envelope and kind of encourage me to do the same in, in some of my other pursuits. So that was wonderful. But the other side of it, man, was the the acting and the choreography. And like, man, th these people are not joking in musical theater. It is intense. <laughs> it's hard work, man. And you're doing, you know, eight shows a week, and I'm singing. I'm listen. I sang in Crash Kelly, but you know, as a singer, I'm a pretty good guitar player. Let's be honest. Here. <laughs> but I'm telling you, that got like there's no excuses. It's not like oh, I can't hit that note. It's like you need to hit that note because that's what's in the score. Right. Figure it out. And I loved it, man. And uh, it was such a wonderful experience. And and. It's so funny because the other guys in the band were great players, but they're really actors primarily. So, you know, it was kind of cool. He said, look, man, this band's got to rock. Can you get these guys rocking? And I, I didn't have to do much work on that end, but they sure helped me on the acting end. You know, usually you get on stage and you're going, oh, man, I'm really, I really got to hit that solo or, you know, we, we've got to be tight in this part. This time I'm going on stage going, I got to get that laugh. I got to nail that laugh. I want that laugh when I got to deliver that line. <laughs> that's amazing those, yeah man and, and and so that change of perspective i brought to everything that came after it i i looked at started looking even at my stagecraft and singing more on stage and and you know and the motion the fluidity and the connectivity with the audience all that stuff started to come together in a more meaningful way so okay so you when what year was that that was 2015 so ever since 2015, you've hung out with your hero for a few weeks. Since then, yeah. are you guys still in touch? You know what? I, I, I'll, I'll, I'm going to liken it to a conversation I had with Billy Gibbons once. I, I, I know he's there if I need him, and he has proven that. And we, you know, I've been able to reach out. He always responds. But it's something I'm very cognizant that I don't want to abuse, right? Yeah, I met yeah. Billy Gibbons. I, I was doing the Crash Kelly record in L.A., and... Uh, I saw Billy Gibbons in an airport and I was like, oh, should I approach him? I said, hey, why not? So I walked up and very, he was buying a magazine and 
Mr. Gibbons, I'm a big fan. I'm sorry to bother you. And uh, I said, I was just in the studio, and it's funny, just yesterday I was trying to emulate one of your guitar tones, and he goes, and all of a sudden it's like talking to the guy in the mountain. He starts stroking his beard. He's doing all the things you want your, you know, your idols to do, right? And he's going, well, hold on now. Let's talk string gauge. And I'm going, okay, <laughs> Mr. Gibbons. And he starts talking about how he uses these light strings because BB uses them. And he's talking, he's spitting words. It's like, like a beat poet talking to you, right? And then at the end, I guess his handler comes up and says, okay, uh, Billy, we got to go. He goes, now hold on. I'm speaking with my young friend here. Oh, that's and awesome. Going. And at the very end of it, dude, sorry, I'm going on and on. I'm, I'm, I'm rambling. But he pulls out this. I asked him to sign something, I think. And he goes, nah, he didn't want to do that. But he has this, like, it looks like a cigarette tray. And it's got his business cards. And he pulls it out and he goes, use judiciously. That's <laughs> amazing. Never, I never used the card, right? Well, I have nothing to phone Billy Gibbons about, but I've got it. <laughs> That's so cool. Uh, I mean, I, I've got a couple. I've got a few Billy Gibbons stories too, and each one of them are j just as cool as that one in terms of how he was. Like, he's just such a cool dude. I don't. I, I don't know. Maybe it was long time ago, like his persona, but I think now that's just how he is. It felt very organic, man. Like, I, I think that I think you just kind of absorb all that. I mean, because really, he's coming from like moving sidewalks, right? Like from Hendrix. Like, he's there at the forefront interpreting all that great stuff coming from England and, and from New York. He's taken that all in with the authentic Texas blues thing. I mean, it's pretty, you know, ground zero for that. And, and and then and also moving forward, but being open to hip hop, being open to all these things like Eliminator should not have been. But he's he's a, a sage, right? Like he's open to the outside influences and can push that music forward, which is to me what a true blues man is, right? Like somebody who, who brings who absorbs and keeps the music, keeps that tradition. I don't know. Uh, fresh. Well, yeah, I, I was lucky enough to visit him in his dressing room at a gig once. And wow. as a, you know how, um, what do you call it? Now I'm lost for words, but uh, like a wardrobe uh, road cases that oh, a, yeah, yeah, a yeah. lot of bands use. On his road case was this giant poster of a DJ, like with 1,200 spinning records. And that's what I love about ZZ Top as well, is like a lot of their... Um, crowd don't even realize that you know that rap crap that you hate your favorite band loves all that stuff and so yes. so that's that's always what i've man zz top and billy gibbons are one of my favorite bands of all time like top 10 top five favorite bands of all time and it's because of stuff like that and billy has never ever disappointed me when i've met him face to face and I've always walked away with a with a story similar to yours, like where it's like, wow, I could tell that story for ages. Exactly. You know? Yeah, it's it's really awesome. That's yeah, he's so cool. he's the best. And and uh, I mean, you're so lucky in the sense that you you've not only met these people, you've worked with these people. Um, um, yeah. How did you hook up with Lee Aaron? Because you know we play with a lot of bands on the road, but. Everybody yeah. was making fun of me leading up to the show with you guys because I was so excited to hopefully 
um, <laughs> to meet, hopefully meet Lee Aaron. Um, so so how, how did you get that gig? Well, I got that because, um, in 2014 or maybe 2013, I can't remember exactly, but I, I, I put out a book about Canadian hard rock and heavy metal called metal on ice. I was going to ask you about that, but go on. Sorry. Yeah. So, so I, anyway, I wrote the book and, and she was one of the figures that I, I definitely wanted to speak to. I wanted to talk about, you know, uh, female representation in, in the rock scene at that time. And, and I was also a huge fan. I'm a big fan. Yeah, huge. Uh, so reached out, and, and, and it was funny. It was my perception at that time that she was just, like, more, more she was more uh, focusing on, on jazz because she she's a legit jazz singer. She, she is a wonderful, um, authentic jazz singer, and, and I know she was focusing on that. But uh, I was intrigued that she was, you know, still interested in rock and so we we talked about that and one of the components when we were putting together when i was writing the book i was also uh working at coalition music a music company here in toronto Mm -hmm. and um and uh the guys i was doing it working on another program but the guys rob and eric at coalition said hey man like that's kind of our our music it would be cool to we should do a record or get these people together and do a show so that became a component of the book release was uh, we actually re-recorded some of the tunes and um, and one of them was Metal Queen. Wow. So, yeah. So uh, I was I went out to Vancouver and, uh, you know, got in the studio and, and, and she would she agreed to, to, to doing it. And uh, man, like, listen, she is such aside from being a great vocalist, that's clear. She's probably the best musician i've ever worked with like she's so musical and so innately creative i was just like like every takes a a killer perfect keeper right and then it's just variations on greatness i was just like this is incredible and fortunately when we were talking you know at first you're a little i I was certainly intimidated right like i'm trying not to like who the hell am i to tell the Aaron what to sing right oh my god Uh, (laughs) yeah so i'm i'm kind of keeping my distance but i we started broke the ice and i think at one point she goes oh you're a geek (laughs) i'm a geek too (laughs) and i went yeah oh okay great and we we just hit it off and um i guess her guitar player couldn't make some shows in ontario and she said by the way come on I'm like kind of trying to keep my cool, but I'm like, yes, yes, yes. And I ended up doing a few shows and, uh, you know, uh, we hit it off and man, it's, it's, it's been absolutely wonderful. We've become writing partners and, uh, and the band's amazing, you know, uh, just, it's, it's just a, a wonderful experience, man. Yeah, that, that's really cool. Uh, um, trying to keep up with all the people that you get to play with is, I mean, I can't even, I can't even keep up. So let's go back to, um, the book metal on ice. I actually, yeah. in leading up to this chat with you, I didn't, honestly, I didn't know that you had released a book, so I have to go back and catch up on it. Um, but what, what is metal on ice all about? What it, what it was about was to me, um, every time I read a Canadian music history book, there's a period that's consistently either glossed over or uh, kind of poked fun at. And it's right. this, this, this period what I was, was so definitive for me because the first concert I ever saw was Helix and Honeymoon Suite. 
in North Bay. And like I got to tell you, that was the first time it clicked to me that, oh, my God, Canadians, people from Kitchener, where I've been, I've been to Kitchener, <laughs> can make music that's better than Motley Crue. This is better. These guys play better. And, and I'm going, this is, and they're doing the moves, and they've got ramps, and there's lights. I'm going, oh, my God. And as a kid, you know, the whole thing, it was, you know, there was first the Twisted Sister thing that made me want to do that, but it was really Helix and, and Honeymoon Sweep that made me realize that this was logistically possible, okay? And I'm all of a sudden the hockey rink where I'm the shittiest hockey player, you know, transforms into this rock arena where I can do the thing I wanted. Oh, this is it. That's the path. And it was the path. Like, it was set in stone that day after that concert. So that always stayed with me. And then, you know, and then we're talking bands that were going across Canada and playing, you know, 3,000 seaters. I mean, I'm reading books. I read stories about bands that played to far less people and had far less of an impact and certainly didn't... uh, push the canadian music story farther internationally than these bands but the but the bands i love are glossed over for i don't know political reasons maybe there's maybe there's some validity when it comes to lyrical content or imagery i don't know but but i said no this was important and there's an important story here uh but really i have to credit uh the guitar player in crash kelly alistair thompson he he worked for uh dunder and press a canadian publishing house and he said look man you're always talking about this stuff why don't you write a book and when I was on the road with Nelly Furtado, I, I found that I had lots of time where I wasn't gigging like it was. I can actually, oh, I can sit in a tour bus or I don't have to worry about, you know, counting the T-shirts or do whatever I have to do when I'm right. my own band. Right, right. It was a pretty cushy gig, i got to be honest. <laughs> so I had, I had time to do this and, and do interviews. And, and, I, and, and I did take the time. And as you know, as an, as an author... Uh, it could be a time-consuming process, but I had the time, and I wanted to tell the story, and I wanted to hear their story and see what it felt like to be them, and and also to see if we could get that story represented in uh, the history books. I, I think they are important artists, and um, I think they deserve to have their story told. So you mentioned Helix, Honeymoon Suite. I'm gonna and Lee Aaron. I, I'm gonna assume yep. those are three uh, acts who are included in the book. They are, yeah. Who yeah, else? Uh, Who else is in there? Yeah, well, you know, it was funny. It, it wasn't an inclusive, an all-inclusive Canadian heavy metal thing because then you'd have to have had bands like Exciter. But I did have Razor. I had uh, nice uh, Sacrifice. Nice. I had um, Anvil. Um, it was the bands that entered into my scope. That was my rule. And I went. I even pushed the limits. Like I, I'm, I'm going haywire. People are going, Haywire's not metal. Said, yeah, but... Dance Desire, you know, man. Dance Desire. Yeah, yeah, man. Short end of a wishbone sounds like Van Halen to me. And I mean, the kids who smoke cigarettes under the bleachers listen to Van Halen. Right. So, not Platinum Blonde, who I love, by the way. I do, right. But but you know what I mean? I, so, I, I kind of had my own version of what the metal community would encompass, right? So, I, I wrote about, like, you know, hard rock bands and... And and, and 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 some of the heavy metal bands and and really, it was more about I wanted to see what what it was like when those 
you know, subgenres kind of what was the difference between like I even talked to Glenn Milchum. I said, look, Glenn, you, like, you're you're playing with Andy Curran on one hand, you're doing no tattoos, but you've got these punk roots and you've also you're you've, you've got obviously ties to the Queen Street scene with the blue rodeo thing. It was just to kind of see what the landscape looked like from people on the inside. Oh, that's really cool. I, I got to chase that down. So I will for well, sure. I'll, I'll make that happen. I, I, we can make that happen. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that, that just sounds like something I would devour over the over a weekend. Like I wouldn't talk to anybody and just keep reading. Uh, <laughs> right yeah, those are, like you said, those are some some acts, some bands that, that yeah, like you're saying, were huge. But nobody uh, references them anymore. And that's fine. But contemporaries are referenced all the time. So it's just a yeah. nice way to level the playing field a bit. That, that was it. It was more just a, like, you know, whatever your feelings are about a certain period, uh, you know, it still, it still happened. And, and, and this did have relevance and it had influence. I mean, ask Shania Twain about Lee Aaron. You know, like she was a big influence on her. Oh, I, I mean, I see it. You know, I always yeah. saw it, but I don't know if Shania was even aware. But she's actually said that in, out loud? Yeah, oh yeah, she has. I think she's she's come out and said that. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Because yeah. it's so, I mean, if you grew up in Canada and you know Lee Aaron, when Shania Twain came out, I was like, why is this familiar to me? Yeah. You know? I, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. So um, there's uh, a, a couple more things. That I, well, there's a lot of things that we, you and I can talk about, about you. <laughs> But I did want to I did want to ask you about your classical guitar albums, and and what's what's all that about? Uh, you've released four or three? Yeah, four, four of them. Well, you know that's a that's a funny thing, because what classical guitar was for me was my way of getting to play the Gasworks, and I'm I'm going to explain that. I was uh, when I was going through high school, I had a, a a dichotomous existence because on one hand. I was a kid. I, I was like president of the students council. I, I liked being involved with school stuff. I was in the French trivia club. I liked all that stuff. But I also started playing in bars when I was 15 with guys who were older than me, like, you know, like in their 30s. So I'm doing this two thing. I, I'm this two sided thing. I'm going to high school, going to Catholic high school with the uniform and everything. But I'm also starting to play in bars Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights in Northern Ontario and Quebec doing, we called it top 40, but now I realize it's the top 40 from like, you know, 10 years before, right? So like I'm, I'm playing like Doobie Brothers songs right. and, 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 you know, Skinner and, and, and whatever, some of the, the hits of the day. Uh, so I'm doing this two-sided thing, right? So I, I'm playing and as I'm talking to these guys, I'm picking up a little bit because ultimately what I want to do is since the Helix thing is I just want to be a part of it. I want to make records and I know you make records in big cities. You don't make records in North Bay. At least I didn't think so at the time. Um, so how do I get there? Right. But there's a part of me that's got an academic side. So, you know, my parents were very supportive, right? At one point I wanted to go to GIT in LA cause I'm buying guitar world. I want to be like Paul Gilbert, but I can't play like Paul Gilbert, but I want, that's what I want to do. My parents are like, well, it seems a little impractical, very expensive. But, you know, you can get a student loan if you go to university and you can study music at a place like in Montreal. And it's like, oh, okay, so how do I do that? Well, 
they didn't have like rock programs, but they had classical programs. And I'm going, well, Ingve plays classical. Maybe that, <laughs> you know, I'm right. trying to, and Randy Rhodes, right? Like I love those guys. So I kind of did a crash course in classical guitar with, um, uh, a great teacher in North Bay, Brian McDowell. And, um, you know, kind of learned enough to go do an audition and, and get in. I got, I got into McGill and I got into U of T. So, but, but the, this is long winded, but the reason I'm telling you this is the reason I did that was because I wanted to get and go play at the Gasworks or I want to go play at you know, Foo Fun or I wanted to go play in a, 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 the rock bars. So that was a way for me to get to the big city. Uh, but, but I ended up liking classical guitar. I, I enjoyed it and I had a great teacher. We studied with Segovia, Ellie Kasner. And so it was an amazing experience. And I, I kind of did the university thing where you had to learn a bunch of repertoire and do like a recital at the end. And, but as soon as I was done school, I was done with classical guitar. <laughs> I taught guitar, but I, I, I just want to play rock guitar. I wasn't like, I was not obsessing about the length of my nails or, you know, if my tremolo was any good. Like I wasn't worried about that. But as I was teaching guitar, I met a guy named Tom McCurcher. I was teaching his son. And I had no idea he was the director of classics at Universal. So long story short, wow, we would talk about rock. One day he goes, "Hey man, want to make records?" <laughs> I'm going, "Well, yeah, I make records." Like, what you? he goes, "Well, I work at Universal, and we do this series called the Number One Series. Why don't you do the Number One Classical Guitar?" Fortunately for me, I had just enough material I could play that I could make one album. <laughs> right? They seem like they're the hits. It was a hit. And, and you know what? That's why I pushed. I actually put D by Randy Rhodes on there. I remember sitting up at Universal and and, and we actually went with um, he introduced me to a label called Opening Day, which was a subsidiary of Universal uh, run by the Canadian Brass. And I remember trying to argue why it was important to put D on. They're going, well, why do we do that? Everything else is public domain. We got to pay publishing on this. Like, why do we? I said, because more kids play classical guitar because of D than any other piece on here. Right, right. So anyway, that started that thing, and I did that, and I did a Christmas album. And the records did well. They were by far my most successful records. And I went and did, like, you know, I had, I had tours of Indigo books. I was on Classical 96. I remember playing with Lang Lang one day. I'm going, what the hell? Like, I'm way out of my depths here, right? But... I, want, I took the shot because I enjoyed it. I was appreciative of the opportunity, and it was a challenge, right? Right. But when push comes to shove, I had an opportunity. I remember meeting with a manager who will go nameless, but a big manager, and he was like, you're full of shit. You don't want to do this. You're not that guy. He goes, you're too old to be a rock star, but you still want to play in rock bands. I remember him saying this to me. And I'm like, you know what? Screw you. <laughs> Screw you. You're right. And that's what I want. And at the end of the day, I like putting out those records, man, but I'd rather go play rock and roll in a bar. Did that's those did those records uh, get you any awards or any any nominations or No, no nominations, but they sold really well. Like I mean, the one the classical the Christmas one was a top 5 Billboard album in the states. And oh, like wow. I had, I, and the other one was top 10. Like they were billboard. And you know who told me? Clay Marshall from Century Media, a heavy metal guy. I, I, oh, I Clay's I was, our guy. Oh, right on. Well, listen, Clay's a beautiful guy. He's a, he's a good friend of mine who actually was my A&R guy at one point when 
Crash Kelly, right? We were on Liquor and Poker. Right, right. Which is essentially... Anyway, Oh, he's Clay's great. Going, he's great. He goes... I, I remember I was in Paris, and, and, and he goes, you don't have a Christmas album, do you? And I went, yeah. He goes, dude, you're in Billboard. <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. I know. So it was it was kind of cool. That was... I, I think maybe, you know... I, I feel very lucky, but I felt I got I got admit I felt pretty cool walking around Paris. I was like, "Hey, man, might be a Christmas album, but I'm in the Billboard charts and I'm playing oh, in Paris tonight." Hell Maybe yeah, it worked out. <laughs> I think it's working out. <laughs> Paris, it working out. <laughs> Paris Billboard, come on. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not wearing leather pants doing either of the gigs, but I. <laughs> right, right. No, nah, man, it was it was very very fortuitous, and I, and I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity and. Uh, and I grew from it, and it provided me more opportunities. Like when the Nelly Furtado gig did come come along, it was because I had some Spanish guitar chops. I could right. kind of, you know, half-ass my way through it, and uh, and I'm very grateful for it. I think Clay might be one of those guys who said, "Hey, you guys know each other, right?" <laughs> well, I'm I'm sure we talked about it because those guys all loved Canadian music, right? They loved all the things that were happening, like Illuminati, Robin Black, or whoever it was, right? Illuminati, Illuminati was on uh, Liquor and Poker, right? Yeah, they were. Yeah, Les, man, what a what a sweet guy, what a great guitar player. Holy smokes! Yes, just incredible. I, I follow his Godfrey guitars. Oh on, yeah, on man. Instagram. Yeah, that is an intense man, but uh, he, he he walks it like he talks it. That's for sure. And and you know he's such a humble guy, but man, when he picks up a guitar, like I'm like. Wow, my fingers don't move half. <laughs> I just don't know how he does it. <laughs> yeah, he he's pretty wild. It's it's pretty awesome. Um, I, I did want to ask you about uh, the one thing that you and I did meet, and this is before we met, I believe. We are actually on a song together, right? Yes. Brian Vollmer's solo album from Helix. Brian's solo album. Yes. We're on a song, and and I remember when. Brian said, "Oh yeah, I'm, you know, I'm working with Sean Kelly and can you sing on this track?" I remember thinking, "I will finally be on a track with Sean Kelly. I have never met the dude, but I'm finally going to be doing something with this guy." <laughs> yeah, man, and you did such a great job. I was such a thrill to oh, hear you singing man. on that. It was great. Uh yeah, man, what like, you know, it, it was it was it was awesome. You did an amazing job and uh yeah, Brian Brian was thrilled to have you on it for sure. Brian is one of the best people I've met in music. He's the greatest. Uh, Brian's yeah. the best. Um, yeah, he's honest, straightforward, heart and soul. And I still, whenever I talk to him, I still flash back to you know the the scene in the Rocky video where they're like on chains and he's he looks like a wild man, and I and I think to myself, am I really talking to that dude? That's amazing. It's so awesome. Like I, 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 you know, I, I loved when Helix put out those uh, um, "Walking the Razor's Edge" and then um, the following album, which name escapes me right now. But the kids are all shaking in the USA. Oh, long way to heaven. Long way to heaven. Kids are all shaking. I mean, I love those man. So it's so great. Like you're saying, like much like you know you as well. Like you know, having a relationship with Brian off stage, just a personal relationship. You know, we might not be headlining um, Madison Square Gardens, but for me, I I'm just like, wow, this is. Or I might might not be winning Grammys, but for me, that's my Grammy. Um, being able to like have a personal relationship with Brian Vollmer. That's you know what I'm so glad you said that because uh, 
that's what it's all about for me. It's about, I realize it's about the experiences. And ultimately, my classical guitar teacher told me something really poignant. He said, you know, we were talking about how competitive classical guitar was at U of T. And he goes, mm-hmm. that's a bunch of bullshit. He goes, music's about friendship. This is like an 80-year-old guy telling me this. He goes, music's about friendship and, and connecting. He goes, the rest is bullshit. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm going, oh, okay. Yeah, and, yeah. And, that's, and, and, and more and more, that's what, I, what I'm taking away from all these experiences is, uh, yeah, man, it's about getting to meet the people who make the, the art that makes you feel so good, makes you feel alive. What a gift. Dark days in the garden of-